This week is National Mental Health Week, so we decided to share some tips and tricks to care for your mental health. Welcome to the Imperfect Millennials, a weekly podcast for millennials by two millennial sisters, where we tackle work, health, relationships, and spirituality. The goal of each episode is to give you one little nugget that will help make your life a little bit better this week and beyond. After you've listened, keep the conversation going over on Instagram, where you can find us at the Imperfect Millennials, shoot us an email, or slide into our DMs. And if you like this episode, please consider sharing it with friends and leaving a review. Welcome to National Mental Health Week. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> Katie and I thought that this was the perfect time to dive deep into mental health and to provide you with some tips and tricks that we've learned along the way. As a disclaimer or as a side note, I wanted to take this opportunity to encourage you if you're listening and need help to reach out and seek professional help. Katie and I want to do a whole episode on you should see a therapist. Um, But until then, and in light of Mental Health Awareness Week, I really wanted to encourage people that if they need to reach out to someone and if they need to talk to someone, that they can do that. Even during the time of coronavirus, a lot of insurance companies and a lot of providers are now accepting telehealth, and that includes therapy. And so you can reach out to someone and seek therapy and start online if needed. There's also a lot of apps and professional services. Um, But until then, Katie and I have some tips and tricks to help with your mental health. We've learned these through our therapists or for me through my clinical training, and we wanted to sort of pass these on to you to make your life a little better. Yeah. Or a little hopefully. more manageable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to sort of kick it off, Katie, you talk a lot on our show about all these really beautiful and great benefits that you're receiving from therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I... I never gave any, any thought to mental health at all whatsoever. Um, and simultaneously, I suffered for ye- for years and years uh, with migraines. <laughs> I actually have one now as we record mm-hmm. this. Um, but what I learned then over the last year of seeing a therapist is a lot, not all of my migraines, but a lot of them are tied to mental health, right? To anxiety, to frustrations, to like, my brain spinning round and round and round in a million directions, like that kind of thing. And that it's, that's why drugs weren't working. That's why acupuncture didn't work. That's why uh, massage therapy and, you know, like all of those things didn't work because I needed to work on like the mental health side of things first. So that to me was a really eye-opening thing that I've discovered uh, probably in the first like three or four months of, of seeing the therapist. And that's one of the things I love about therapy and about being a therapist is that, you know, really helping people see that our body, mind, and soul are connected and we can't separate them. And when we try, we get a disjointed view of the whole person and of healing, right? You can work on the physical all you want, but if the mental or the spiritual is suffering, we're going to see the effects of that. Yeah. And what I found so interesting, right? Like, so I've had migraines pretty consistently since I was about 17. Um, and I'm 36 now. So like a solid 20 years ish. Um, 
And that one doctor in all the years that I'd seen specialists had ever suggested, perhaps it's just a mental health thing. Like perhaps you should just see a therapist or perhaps you should see a counselor or a psychologist. Not one. That's wild. And it's, it, it is wild to me because good grief, I could have been a lot more migraine free in my life, you know, had I discovered it sooner or whatever and whatever timing is, is everything. And maybe this was the right time, but I do find it really interesting that like doctors of the traditional medicine, right. Wouldn't necessarily recommend this, which I think eh, is a little less traditional. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we are quick to go to the medical professionals, right? Whereas so often we have, and everyone sort of experiences what's called like psychosomatic features, right? Where it's like the physical, the mental or emotional is manifesting physically. So for me, I essentially become lactose intolerant if I'm super stressed. I just can't tolerate dairy, which is the weirdest thing in the world. But it wasn't until I sort of like took a step back and I was like, I'm not lactose intolerant because this isn't happening all the time. So what the heck is happening? And it's taking a step back and being like, I'm super stressed or I'm overworked or, you know, and sort sort of being able to see, which is why I always encourage people, you know, to do, to do it all. Like to, you know, you couple, you know, your seeing your doctor with seeing a therapist or seeing, you know, and sort of, you know, so that you really get that whole picture. Yeah. And what I, and what I think is interesting, and maybe this was my first tip to all of it is to keep in mind, like for mental health, like you don't have to go see a therapist or a counselor only if you're severely mentally ill. And I think, I I think we have this like idea sometimes in our culture or this mentality that like, Oh, but I'm not crazy. I'm not bipolar. So I don't Mm -hmm. need to like, maybe I'm not, I don't need to see someone because of this. Well, Okay, but like if you have a stomach ache that's persistent for a while, but you don't have cancer, you're still going to go to the doctor and get it figured out. Like you're still going to go and get help. And so I think we need to kind of change that mindset. And that's something that starts inside to be like, it doesn't mean there's something irreparably wrong with me that I need to go see a therapist for a time or, or for the next 20 years, whatever, right? That it, it's really good. Absolutely. And I think one of the things to keep in mind or to sort of help with maybe that perceived social pressure or even your own prejudice or bias against therapy or therapists or the whole profession in general is that it the myth that it has to be broken in order to fix it is so false. Right. First. And secondly, you know, thinking about the fact that there's no rule book to life. There's no manual for how to survive or how to cope with the curveballs that life throws at us. And sometimes we need someone to teach us, right? We go to school for a reason. We go to doctors for a reason. And, and okay, maybe if the word therapist is scary, think of it as a coach, right? There are life coaches out there. They have a different degree than therapists do, but they're coaching you through ways to manage your emotions. They're coaching you through ways to manage difficult situations, which is such a blessing because why do it alone if you don't have to? Right. And I think like now that I've been home for a while and our, and our dad is a, is a marriage therapist and like a couple's counselor or whatever, he likes to call it a marriage coach. 
but he's technically a therapist. And uh, (laughs) what I think is cool is like, yes, he sees couples that need a lot of help, but he also sees couples that are engaged and want to figure out how to do marriage well or recently married and want to figure out how they stay together for life. And that doesn't mean there's something broken or something wrong. It means like they just want to be better. They want to do this better. And I think the same can be just in general for life. Like it doesn't mean I'm broken, but, but I want to, I want to thrive more in my life and in my career and in my relationships. And therefore I'm seeing a therapist to help me figure out like what things are roadblocks to me really thriving at who I'm supposed to be. Absolutely. And therapy doesn't have to be this old school Freudian lay on the couch and let's talk about your, your, and analyze your dreams and talk about early childhood. You know, that's such a myth that like Mm -hmm. it, it isn't, like that and it can you don't have to talk about your past at all you can talk about the future and where you want to go and how do I get there right how do I utilize my strengths and weaknesses to be the best version of myself and I think that's really what it what it comes down to and Mm -hmm. um and I think Katie that's a great segue into sort of into sort of the, the meat and potatoes of our episode is sort of what tools can we also give our listeners Mm-hmm. to navigate and like give on to you as like therapy has given to us essentially. So Katie, what would be one tip or technique or thing that you've, you've learned from therapy that you were like, Whoa, this is, this is helpful. Yeah. For me, um, one of the things that I've learned and <laughs> I'm still working on, I think I will be working on it my entire life but is working at not mind reading and not kind of fortune telling what I think other people are thinking or believing about me, but also about things that I've done or, or even like reading into a comment that maybe they've made or, or a text or an email that I've gotten and not assuming or spending all this time wondering what exactly the nuances of that statement were, you know? And so I spend a lot of time being like, okay, um, I talk about it a lot in therapy, but I spend a lot of time outside of therapy being like, okay, like this thing that I'm fortune telling or or mind reading, assuming this person believes this or thinks this about me or about the class that I teach or whatever, like, is any of this based in fact Mm -hmm. that I actually have Mm -hmm. facts that I know, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like I worried a lot, especially like early on as a teacher that I was a bad teacher, right? And so you know, now, now I look back and I'm like, okay, did I have any proof that I was a bad teacher? Sure. I had kids complain that like I gave too much homework or I was too hard, but like, I also had kids be like, thank you so much. Like I learned so much from you and I grew a lot and had parents who were very happy with it too. So I'm like, okay, so I, I don't really have proof of this thing that my mind is telling me right. and I'm just fortune telling or assuming what someone thinks or what someone's going to do as a result of no true facts. So that for me has been really helpful. I think just sort of naming those two things is is helpful in sort of owning. It doesn't mean that you've stopped doing it and like, oh, therapy cured me, but it helped you recognize these pitfalls that you, that we all fall into, and being able to take a step back and then adjust course, right? And don't right, like don't fortune tell and like sort of go down that rabbit hole of if this happens, then what, and here and there, and like all the way down. And I also think the great thing about these two techniques is that not only can we apply them to others, we can't assume others will do it for us. 
don't assume other people can read your mind. They're not mind readers. And that's not fair to project mind reading onto them. Well, they should have known that I needed or that I wanted or that I was. Yeah. And that's not fair Mm -hmm. to put onto other people because what it does is upsets us. Yeah. And what I've found too, like a natural progression of this, of like working at not fortune telling, not mind reading, all of this kind of stuff is now I find that I'm working at giving other people more the benefit of the doubt. So like whatever, I get an email that at first read sounds annoyed and snarky. And I take a step back and be like, okay, do I have any proof that this is really what's going on? And then also, okay, maybe she's having a bad day. Maybe she was up all night with her teething son. Maybe she sent it out really fast as she was, you know, getting called into the doctor's office. I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes here. So working at not assuming what other people are thinking has also helped me take a step back and like be able to reanalyze these things so that then I don't get caught in that endless mind warp basically right and i think that 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 also helps you regulate your emotions which is something that i think that's something that i've learned emotional regulation um i teach it to all of my clients and i use it in my daily life because i i guess i wasn't good at particularly and if any of my friends from high school are listening they can attest i was not good at regulating my emotions I wasn't good at naming them. I just let them be what they were. And that was it. Like if I was angry, I was angry and everyone else had to deal with it, you know, or oftentimes it was like, you're super upset. Upset's not an emotion, but I can't name it. I don't know what it is. and I don't know how to name this. And so emotional regulation, part of it is a, it's in the title, being able to regulate your emotions. And Katie, through those two techniques, it sounds like that's what you were able to do is like also regulate your own emotions by not letting other people or by this perception of what other people are doing affect you emotionally. Yeah, but I, I will think- say I'm not very good at the emotional regulation either, but on the kind of opposite side, like I don't, I don't acknowledge them at all. Yeah. And like, <laughs> that's the other thing, like I, for a while I would go in and talk to the therapist and she'd be like, okay, write down the emotions you experienced this week. And then we can talk about them. And I came and I was like, annoyed. And she's like, okay, what else? And I was like, nope, that's it. And she was like, okay, there are like hundreds of emotions you could have picked. That's the only one you came up with. And I was like, I think that's the only one I felt all week. And she was like, oh my gosh, we got to work on this. (laughs) Like you felt one emotion all week. And I was like, I mean, I think so. And she was like, oh no, 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 no. Because I just, I've spent years not paying any attention to them thinking they were bad. Right. Well, and I think you fall into two people generally fall into two camps. A, emotions are bad and they're not a thing. We don't acknowledge them. And B, emotions are everything. Right. And so what we need to recognize is that emotions aren't a bad thing. They're also not everything. Right. Emotional regulation is being able to acknowledge and name the emotion Except that it's there and not let it own you. Yeah, I think I like your behavior. Yeah, I like to think now of emotions as like a signpost where like it's, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, like when you go hiking and you come across a signpost and it's like, you know, here's the emotion and then it's your choice. Like, am I walking down that path or am I not? Am I acknowledging that signpost or am I just like storming off into the woods and like hoping I'm going to get to where I want to be? So they're not, they're not necessarily good or bad. They are, but how we choose to deal with them is what, you know, is what it's really all about. 
I really like that analogy of a signpost, right? Because they are an indicator to us and to other people. They communicate to us, right? Fear isn't always a bad thing. Fear can be a really good motivator to avoid a very unsafe situation, right? I think fear can also paralyze you into not living. Right. Even anger, you know, like righteous anger. Someone says something horrible about your mom. That's not true. Like, it's okay to be angry at first and be like, how dare you? My mom is a beautiful human being, right? Like that's an okay <laughs> emotion. But then if I'm like egging your house every day, cause I'm so angry at you still for that comment, like, okay, then that you've, you've taken the wrong path. Like you saw the signpost and you chose the path you shouldn't have. Right. And so I think part of emotional regulation and part of what I teach my clients is to name it. That's a very difficult thing to do. And if you need to pull out an emotion wheel or an emotion chart to be able to look at emotions and sort of decipher which ones you're feeling, I think that's a great way to sort of start by naming your emotions. Maybe you already know exactly what you're feeling. Name it. And then identify what your action urge is. When I feel this, my gut instinct, what I want to do first is X, Y, and Z. And I think in naming that, It helps us sort of take these automatic actions and behaviors and turn them into, right, sort of that signpost of, well, I'm feeling the urge to punch a wall, right? But without sort of taking the time to acknowledge it, taking the time to name it and know what your initial reaction is, how are you going to stop that? How are you going to change course or direction into a more effective behavior or a healthier behavior, right? Yeah, I think, I think the emotion wheel, you can, you can Google them and find them, but that to me, or even just looking at the list of emotions, especially if you're someone who doesn't acknowledge, like doesn't acknowledge your emotions. If you're somebody who's super emotional, you probably don't even need the wheel. You can probably come up with like 25 words to describe what you're feeling in this exact moment. (laughs) But if you're someone who doesn't, the emotional wheel can be really good because it, it basically like you pick the emotion that you're feeling like sad, but then it like branches out into like, okay, are you sad, but are you hurt? Are you depressed? Are you subdued? Are you aggrieved? And then it goes even more. Are you gloomy? Are you somber? Are you agonized? Are you desolate? Are are you feeling small? Mm -hmm. You know, and like, I think that can really help identify those things. Um, But yeah, emotions are tricky, tricky. Tricky, right? But the more accurate we can be and the more descriptive we can be, the better we can navigate. It's like having a very detailed map. If you mm-hmm. don't really know what you're feeling and you don't, you can't name your urges, how do you know where to go or how do you know where to move forward? And so once you're able to name it, I'm feeling irate. Mm-hmm. What's your action urge? I want to scream. I want to scream at this person. Right. Okay. Then a really great way to regulate that emotion, to bring it back so that it's not owning you, but you're owning it is to name what is the opposite that I can do? So the extreme opposite of I'm irate, I'm going to scream at this person. The opposite would actually be to speak in a very soft whisper. And, and, and the thought of doing that initially is like, wait, no, I'm irate and I'm justified in my anger and I want to scream. But what it does is you are acting in a way. It's sort of like your action leads and your emotion will follow. You don't want to stay irate. You know, is screaming going to solve the issue? No. Is it going to resolve? No. Is it going to take away the hurt? No. 
So you're going to lead by action in the opposite direction to pull your emotions with you. Yeah. What I love about that too is so Aristotle, (laughs) I'm throwing it way back to ancient philosophers (laughs) today. Um, But Aristotle says virtue is the mean between two extremes, right? So um, I don't know, whatever you take, uh, greed (laughs) for lack of a better one, right? And you have either like, Greed being the, the the one extreme of like, I'm just going to have everything. And then the opposite being like, I'm not going to have anything at all. And like, I'm not even going to take care of myself. And the middle between the two is where you want to go. But his point is when he says, when you're trying to grow in virtue, you should identify where you fall kind of on that spectrum and then shoot for the opposite because you're going to mm-hmm. land short and you're probably going to land closer to the middle, which means you're going to land closer to virtue. And I think that's great. And it's kind of the same with you, like emotionally, like regulating our emotions is, is that like, okay, let's shoot for the opposite. So we land somewhere at a happy medium between what I'm feeling right now and what the opposite of that thing is. Absolutely. And I like the, there's a ton of different techniques to use for emotional regulation. This is just one, but it's one that I have found to be really helpful because it's helped me name emotions. It's helped me name my initial urges or reactions that I didn't even realize was my first instinct, right? Sometimes I didn't even realize that when I'm super hurt, my first reaction is to avoid or run away. You know, it was just, it was, it, it becomes so automatic that you don't necessarily realize you're doing it sometimes, Oh yeah, which I think is it, it can be in naming it can be really cathartic. Like, wait, I've identified the problem and that's what I do. I, I didn't even realize. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it can be really helpful and also really painful when you start seeing all of those things, oh, whether it's through therapy or just even personal reflection and suddenly you're like, dang, I don't handle conflict well or dang, I don't do this well or whatever it happens to be. Absolutely. And I think some of our emotions and some of our behaviors are very deeply ingrained. And going from, you know, if we imagined a scale and zero is the given to the emotion and the urge you feel and 10 is the extreme exact opposite. For some of us, going from zero to 10 may be impossible, right? Doing the exact opposite of what we feel. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, seasons of depression where you cannot get out of bed and you want to stay in bed all day. The exact opposite would be getting out of bed and being an active participant in your daily activities. And that might feel nearly impossible, but you can still utilize this opposite technique, but just in a scaled version. Okay. If zero is staying in bed all day, what's a two? And can I manage that? What would a four look like? And can I get there? And maybe it takes you 30 minutes to get to a two, but you're acting opposite the way you feel. And eventually you'll increase in that scale, right? Eventually your actions are going to pull that mood away. And it's also, I think the scale is great because it it gives you time, gives you time and it gives you acceptance of where you're at and also the limitations that we all have. Right. Yeah. And it's important to acknowledge those things too, that like we do have these limitations and you can't always just will yourself Mm -hmm. to not have them anymore right? Or you can't, if you have severe depression, you can't just will yourself to smile and be happy and get out of bed. Like that's, that's not possible for some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my favorites. Katie, what would be another thing that you've sort of gained from? Um, 
I think this actually kind of goes along with emotional regulation a little bit, but one of the things that I've been trying to do is like paying more attention to my body and like reading my body and like the little Mm -hmm. triggers or signals my body's trying to send me to be like, there's something going on with your mental health. You need to pay attention. So like for me, some of the things that like I've started to notice, but I'm still not very good at recognizing is like, I clench my jaw a lot. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, and I had a mouth guard for that because I went through a whole thing, but like, I'll notice it like during the day, like if I'm really tense and suddenly I'll just be like, Oh, my jaw hurts. Like my jaw hurts a ton. And I need to like actively choose to relax my jaw. And sometimes I even just sit there for a while, like with my mouth open so that I, I literally can't clench my jaw, but like paying attention to that or paying attention to like, huh, I suddenly have a lot more tension in my neck and my shoulders. And I wonder why. And I used to be like, huh, just weird. I must've just pulled something weird. Or like even a couple months ago, I was at, um, seeing my massage therapist and she was like, wow, you're really tense. She's like, is, has work been more difficult these days? And I was like, no, not at all. And then like 30 minutes into it, she was like, no, but seriously, your back is so (laughs) messed up. And I was like, oh yeah, actually I have been really tense. And I had not recognized it. I just was like, I must be working out hard (laughs) until finally she was like, no, there's something wrong here. And then I had to take a step back and be like, oh, so anyway, so reading my body and kind of then giving it what it needs to thrive and whether that is a massage or loosening my jaw or going for a run or drinking more water, even (laughs) right. Things like that, I think are really important to mental health. This idea of body awareness is so crucial to our well-being, not just our physical well-being, but our mental and emotional well-being, because your body does not lie. (laughs) It's not going to lie. Physically, your body will tell you what it needs. And unless we're not attuned to it, unless we're not listening well enough, we're not going to give it what it needs and we will experience the side effects. You can ignore your mental and emotional for a while. That's going to catch up though, because your body is going to tell you what I love about that is that I think because you knew to look for it, you were able to identify the signs. If you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. Like that example about your back, you weren't necessarily tying together the back pain or the tightness to your stress until someone brought it to your attention, but you were able to sort of identify pretty early on that that jaw pain was related to stress. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that that pain's going to go away, but it's an indicator into another aspect of your well-being that you need to now address. Right. And that's the thing. Like me acknowledging my job pain doesn't mean suddenly like whatever's causing that's going away. But what it does mean is now suddenly I'm aware that there's something causing me stress or anxiety where some people are really super hyper aware of those things. And some people pay very little attention to them until they get an indicator. Right. And so that's why I think like I'm constantly working at paying better attention to those things and like waking up and like doing almost like a body assessment and being like, okay, like where am I feeling this? And what is that trying to say to me? Like, what is it trying to communicate to me? I have this, this is reminding me, I have this friend who I lived with in New York and every now and then I'd like be hanging out with her and she'd be like, I just need five minutes. Like, I just need to go listen to my body to figure out what it needs. It's like, what the heck? (laughs) And sometimes she'd come down and she'd be like, I just need to go for a walk around the block. Or she'd like, I think I need a Coke. I just need some caffeine. But like, she would just go and disappear and listen to her body and then come back and like, give it what it needed. And and I used to think it was crazy. And now I'm like, that makes so much sense. Wow. I mean, that's like a, 
that's a level we all wish to achieve. Yeah. I wish I could just be like, I'm going to take five seconds and then just, mm, this is what I need. Like, that is something. And again, like, this is something that we are going to be, our well-being, our physical health, our mental health, that's a lifelong project. You know, yeah. being able to not fortune tell, being able to emotionally regulate, being able to read your body, that is a forever right. skill. Right. That is never fully developed and that is never done growing. Well, and I think at different times, different things like my jaw never used to bother me. And now my jaw bothers me more. Maybe because I figured out my headaches. I don't know. But like <laughs> it's things like that. But I do think, too, with the idea of like reading our bodies, I think it's also really important even before our bodies start reacting, like for our mental health, giving our bodies what they need. So eight hours of sleep a night, water, proper nutrition, like all of those things I think can often be very overlooked when it comes to mental health. But if you're eating a bunch of sugary crap all day and staying up late binging Netflix and not getting solid hours of sleep because you put so much blue light in front of your eyes, like all of that has an impact on our mental health too. And I think we often forget that part. Absolutely. And I think something for me that I've noticed, if I'm having a particularly anxious day, if there's just something that I'm I'm nervous for, or it's just, I don't know, like I'm off that day and there, there, I have more anxiety than, than usual or whatever. I know, I know now, I didn't know at the time, but I, I have to drink less coffee that day Yeah, because for a while I didn't realize that the, the jitteriness and sort of the effects of coffee were sort of compounding onto the anxiety and making it worse. And instead of saying you had too much coffee today, the problem that I was stressing about became insurmountable and my ability to manage the anxiety that day became nearly impossible. And, you know, and, and so being able to sort of take a step back and say, you know, this is how I'm feeling today and I'm going to adjust my diet or my exercise routine or my, to just play into what I need for the day, play, play the cards. Right. And but we have to be listening. Well, exactly. I think too, like, so today in Chicago, like it's a pretty gross, dreary, horrible day. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's a really high humidity day. And I know I get headaches more frequently when it's a high humidity day. Like that's just a fact. And if it's a high humidity day, that's gray out and disgusting. I'm probably going to have an even greater headache. And if it's a high humidity day, that's gray out and I'm stressed out about something. I'm guaranteed a migraine. And so I think sometimes, and I'm sure mental, a lot of other mental health things work this way, and we need to give ourselves a, a chance to step back and be like, okay, well, today is a high humidity day that's disgusting out. So this is impacting my mental health in some way, and I can like acknowledge that, and then I can choose what I'm going to do with that. And maybe it means I'm going to demand a little bit less of myself today and allow myself a day to rest. Or maybe that means, like for me with my migraine, like, okay, I need to go lay down in a dark cave for a little bit or whatever, or I need to do something that brings me joy because these other things are hindering that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but, but being able to acknowledge like, okay, a gray day is harder for me or a humid day is harder for me or this time of the month is harder for me or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the difference between, between being, proactive and reactive. It's okay to be reactive. Sometimes we don't see it coming until it hits us and we're like, shoot, I have to adjust. But other times we know, right. Or we should work to know our weaknesses and our limitations and the days that are more difficult for 
for us or the conversations that are harder, anticipate that, be proactive and sort of buffer ourselves for, for what's to come. Yeah. And I think too, this, we talk a lot about like keeping a journal of some sort, but I do think sometimes it can really help. Like I used to do this for my migraines and now looking back, I'm like, oh, I should have kept much better note of some of these other things that I, cause obviously now that I know that it's a mental health thing and not like, oh, I ate mushrooms last night type of thing. <laughs> um, but you know, like kind of keeping a journal and paying attention to like, okay, well, these are the factors that made me have a more difficult day or like I was more anxious today, but here's, here's what the day looked like Mm -hmm. so that we can go back later and look for clues. It's like our body and the day and all that like leaves us breadcrumbs in order to be able to figure it out. But unless we're actively like seeking it out, we're not going to find the things that are triggers or the things that will help and that will be aids to having better mental health. And I think to dovetail off that, um, a mindfulness and distress tolerance technique that I really like using and, and personally using and also teaching my clients is um, a sensory self-soothing skill or technique. And, and essentially what it does is it brings you, you know, to this greater awareness of your body and of your senses. Cause you go through all five senses. It, um, really sort of helps concentrate your mind. That's a mindfulness technique. And it also grounds you and helps you tolerate distressful situations, right? And the more that we can sort of build these tools and techniques to handle stressful situations, the healthier we're going to be in general. And so, um, and it, and I love how body oriented it is because you can do this anywhere, anytime, and in front of anyone and no one would know any wiser. And so it's this sensory, you can basically go through all five of your senses and you can either really tune into them and you can do this by, you know, what are three things that I see? What are three things that I feel? What are three things that I hear? What are three things that I taste? Interesting. Did I get all of them? What am I missing? <laughs> and, you know, the fifth Smell. sense, what are the three? No. Smell. What are three things that I smell? Sure. And so it's it's super helpful. And it's also this body scan and this awareness of what am I experiencing here and now in this moment? What is my body experiencing? Right? What are three things that I feel? It might be tension in my shoulders, right? It might be the ground that my feet are on cueing me into this stability of the stability, right? Um I really encourage people to do sensory walks, especially now given everything and an opportunity to get outside and to just really stop your mind from wandering and sort of spiraling, doing a sensory walk and just naming everything that you're seeing, everything that you're feeling, everything that you're tasting, you know, everything that's around you affecting you physically, I think is a really great technique to sort of hone into your body, but also regulate to stressful feelings and emotions. And yeah, what I like about that too, well, 
I know some people who are really into mindfulness and they say one of the like initial practices to mindfulness is the raisin practice. I don't know if you've heard this, but you're supposed to like mm-hmm. get a raisin and then like look at a raisin and see all the crevices of the raisin and yeah. feel what it feels like in your fingers. And then you're supposed to put the raisin in your mouth, but like, don't chew it yet. And like, ex- mm-hmm. basically like experience the raisin in all ways possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but again, this kind of goes back to like, when we work at being more mindful and paying attention to these senses and all this kind of stuff, we then are being more attentive to our body. And later down the line, we're able to read our bodies more. We're able to know, like see these things better because again, we talk about this a lot, like it's a muscle that we're working at growing. Um, And if we're working at kind of growing that mindfulness um, muscle, we're able to pay more attention to the things that could help or harm our mental health Mm -hmm. and choose, you know, better paths as a result. And I think I love that food example that you gave. I have done that before. I took a radical art class in like, um, in college and we did, uh, meditations and it was just a variety of different mindfulness and meditative techniques. And one of them was a food one. What I like about honing into our senses is that this can be done anywhere at any time. So imagine you are at a really stressful dinner and maybe there's a conflict or a fight going on and you can't leave. The option to get up and walk away isn't there. And so maybe you engage in a sensory self-soothing with your food and you just think about how does this food taste right now? Can I be as descriptive about this taste as possible? How does this, how does this food taste or um, feel in my mouth? How does it smell? And en- what does it look like? And engage as many senses as possible to sort of minimize that stressful environment or maybe you're taking public transportation and it's been a stressful day or there's conflict or there's whatever it may be and you close your eyes and you name every single sound that you can hear and everything every single smell that you can smell and sort of bringing yourself into a very controlled environment is so helpful and so if you can master those five senses it's extremely helpful yeah Yeah, I think too, a good, especially like when you're in environments that are more complicated or that can be more triggering or whatever for you, like the the breathing exercises that happen a lot through mindfulness or through anything like that can be really, really helpful. I started doing that like right before I would go into something that I knew would cause me stress. And I would just like sit in a chair, like ground my feet and just, you know, close my eyes and take several deep breaths in and out. And just like really paying attention to my breaths instead of anything else that was going on. And it really, it's amazing because it sounds like it's something super stupid and new agey and like, oh, how zen of you. But like, it really can help. And and like, I got so much into the practice that every now and then I'll not even realize that I'm like in a stressful situation, but I'll catch myself deep breathing, <laughs> like That's sometimes in random places. And then I'll be like, oh, okay. All right. I, I need to do this. That's then, the best part. Exactly. Right? When your muscle will do what it needs to do without you having, you know, like you don't have to tell yourself how to walk. I mean, like literally you don't have to cognitively say like, okay, right foot up, engage these muscles because it's been so repetitive. Your body will do that for you because that's a necessity now. Whereas when we do this with mindfulness, when we do this with distress tolerance, when we do this with, you know, you name it, anything for our mental health. 
the more we do it, the more we practice it in distressful situations, but also in non-stressful situations, the more it will become your automatic response and your body will do it without you having to engage it. Right. I mean, that's the beauty of habits, you know, and I think we, we did a whole episode on habit stacking and the, and how you can do that. But I think, you know, sometimes we can look at all of this stuff and be like, oh my gosh, to like get my mental health where I want to be. Like I need like a million new habits. I need to exercise and I need to start eating kale and I need to whatever. <laughs> like, okay, great, fine. But like, you're not going to start that all tomorrow. Pick one that you can attach to a habit you already have and work at that. And then when you have that one established, pick another one. Like don't, don't make your mental health worse as you try to stack a million new habits on, right? Build on what you have already and just slowly start cultivating new ones and better ones slowly over time. And then you'll see that muscle memory kicks in and you start doing them very naturally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's obviously... These are just a handful of tips and tricks and, and I don't know, inspirational and motivational things that Katie and I have sort of taken from therapy and the whole therapeutic process in general. Um, Katie, what would be one of your takeaways or what would be one thing that you want our listeners to sort of gain from this episode? Um, I mean, I think my personal takeaway is the emotions I've been working on, acknowledging my emotions, <laughs> learning how to accept them, deal with them, talk about them, etc. I'm reading right now the book, The Emotions God Gave You, to try and understand that better and how they work in like the big process of things. So that that for me is my takeaway. But I think if I wanted to give anybody a message, I would say, um, especially for those who are, who tend to get spend a lot of time in their own heads. Um worrying about others um to really work at not fortune telling and not mind reading and that will make a world of difference what about you Mona? um you know i would say my takeaway or what i would want someone to take away from this episode would be um to to have the courage and and the daring to work on yourself right And, and it's okay to sort of put yourself first because a better you is a, is a better person for others, right? Like it's not selfish to be able to say, you know, to be able to set boundaries and it's not selfish to be able to have sort of different techniques to use. Right. And on that note, trust the process. And remember we're thriving, not just surviving. Imperfectly yours. Katie. And Mona. Mona.